Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Revelation 1. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about fear this morning to start off. I want to talk a little bit about fear. Um, when our kids were little, I joke often that there was a, about a 10-year span that I didn't get a full night's sleep. So some of you, like, parents with little kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? Somebody's up in the middle of the night. When you have four, they get together every evening and they make a schedule. <laughs> yeah, it's like family bonding, right? It's like, all right, you got Tuesday, I'll take Wednesday. Then Thursday, we can double team them, right? And so, like, I remember it was okay, well, that one's sick this night and, and this one had a bad dream the next night and then the next night there was a storm and that one's always scared when the storm comes and then this one heard brother and then they're coming in. Like, so it was like never ending. They were every single night and there's nothing quite like the fear, there's nothing quite like the startle of you're laying in bed, sound asleep, middle of the night and you hear something or you notice something and you are startled awake and as you open your eyes laying peacefully on your pillow there is a four-year-old face right here that's like a that's a shock that you don't get over quick right blood's pumping heart's racing like okay what's going on what are we doing right as our children multiplied, that happened more and more often. And, and it was because something, most of the times, because something scared them. They needed comfort. They needed to be near us. The natural response to something that scared them was to come into mom and dad's room and be close to us. Actually, over time, it turned out to be coming close to mom because dad would take you back to your own bed. <laughs> that was not the desired outcome, right? So they would come in, they would come to mom, and then she would let them into bed. And, and they, you know, we were in the same house, especially when they were little. We were in this little twin, and they weren't, they weren't further away from me. Like, they weren't even as far as the back of this room from us. Like, the house was so small. We were in this bedroom. They were about the middle of this room away from us. They were close to us, but they couldn't see us, couldn't hear us, couldn't talk, couldn't touch us. So they had to come close to us. They had to be aware of our presence, had to be tangible, it had to be visible, had to be something they could see and feel. And then there's something about knowing that they were near us that made the difference. And then they could go to sleep. And then we could not. Because <laughs> there's, some, there's something that they put inside of children that, that is active as they sleep with parents. It kicks you and hits you and slaps you, and sleeps on top of your head, and your face, and all kinds of things, right? So, yeah. We grow up, and we grow out of the need for mom and dad to be close to us, to, for us to face what is scary in life. But we don't grow out of being scared, do we? We don't grow out of stuff that is fearful. What we need when life is hard, when life is full of uncertainty, when you doubt yourself, when you doubt everything around you, what you need, believer, what you need is to know this simple truth. God is near you. That's what you need to know. God is near. Maybe that sounds childish to you. Uh, I'm a grown person. I don't, need, I don't need a babysitter. I don't need God to be near me. I assure you it's not childish at all. As a matter of fact, the experiences that we have as children are really reflective of a reality we live out through our whole life, that life is bigger than we can control, 
that we don't have enough power to keep ourselves safe, that we don't have enough wisdom to know which way to go, that we need someone greater to step into our lives and we need to know that person is for us and with us. I really believe that all of the rushing that we do, the fast-paced living, does anybody live rushed? Does anybody have more to do than you can do? Does anybody feel like there's always more, there's always more, and you like fall into bed at night and completely exhausted from running and running and running? I'm going to tell you, I'm not saying you're not busy, but I genuinely believe that that is a strategy that our enemy uses to keep us from knowing that God is near. Because when you're rushing and rushing and rushing, you don't have time to notice. You don't have time to put your mind on it. As a matter of fact, as you're rushing and rushing, the, the inertia of that is for all the weight of my life to be on me. You start to say things like this. Well, I gotta get that and I gotta make sure that happens and I can't let this stop and I gotta make sure I talk to that person and I, 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 I. Running, running, all the weight of life here. And I really believe that the enemy has strategized in our culture, in our world, to keep us so rushed that we, even though God is near, we never feel Him. We never see Him. We never hear Him. We live like we don't have Him. We live like He's somewhere out there, not like our God is near. Because we would have to slow down in order to see Him. We would have to stop thinking that we have to keep up if we wanted to hear Him. But when we do, and when you notice this, when, when this seed takes hold in your soul, I'm telling you, it is a life changer. It was a life changer through, for God's people throughout history. This is a promise. This is a statement. This is a grouping of words that God's people throughout all of history have held onto tightly. It is the last words Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew after he gives the Great Commission, this calling to share the Gospel with every creature, with everyone that we possibly can. He closes it by saying, and I am with you to the very end. In the letter to Philippi, where Paul says, don't be anxious about everything. He says, the peace of God will rule your hearts and minds. That great, tremendous teaching in Philippians 4. Do you know what he says right before that? Literally, the words right before, do not be anxious about anything, are these. The Lord is near. You can look it up. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. It is an answer that we have abdicated. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13 quotes Moses' words to Israel in Deuteronomy 31, where God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Joshua's career begins by being called several times in Joshua 1, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And the answer, the reason underneath of it is always this, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Our God is near is a game changer. God's people, full-grown men and women, have lived this truth throughout time. Here in Revelation, we see that same truth for the church today, and it is the setup for discussing the future. Now, I don't know, has anybody ever heard or seen comments online about Revelation and, and what it all means, and this person's this, and that person's that, and got to be on your guard, and wake up people, you know, all that kind of stuff. Anybody ever seen that kind of content online? It, 
what bothers me about it is this. Revelation has turned somehow into a book where we're all supposed to be on high alert all the time for all the bad things that are coming. <gasps> you better watch out. Oh, no. They're going to start putting things in your hand and in your head, and they're going to start marking. <gasps> People, this is good news. Jesus is coming. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you have to get all like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. We got to get back to realizing that Jesus is near us. And the whole point of this is he's coming to get us. So when you get all that stuff and it gets twisted around into, oh, man, oh, no, oh. That's not the point of this book. If it was, it was very cruel because it was written to a church that was walking into persecution. So if the point was you better be on high alert and you better be scared and you better make sure you're protected, it was a lousy book. But it doesn't start there and it doesn't end there. It starts with, guess what? Jesus is near. Jesus is coming. Matter of fact, it says he's already on his way. The way it's worded is like he's in transit right now. We're just waiting for him to arrive. That's the expectancy that God's people have lived with throughout history. John's writing this book about the things to come, and they may be scary, they may be hard to understand, images and pictures. What the people that read this book are going to do is they're about to face really deadly and constant danger, giving them every reason to live in fear. So the book starts with a vision of Jesus and telling us that Jesus is near because in Jesus' estimation, that is the answer to living afraid. As we face fear in our lives, it is supposed to make us go to mom and dad's bed. It is supposed to make us double down on where this book starts. Jesus, where are you? I know you're here. I need to see you. I need to feel you. I need to hear you. I need to know that you are holding me, that you are walking with me, that you are speaking to me. Jesus, would you show me you? It's one of the reasons we do what we do on Sunday morning. We need to see Jesus, people. We need to see him. And the world can make it dim, but we need to turn up the lights and make it bright because we need Jesus. As we've gone through this first chapter of Revelation, we've seen that God reveals himself to people. The word revelation is God choosing to reveal himself to us. He wants us to know him. If you think God doesn't like you, if you think God has it out for you, if you think God is against you, well, I want you to know this, that God sent his son and gave us his word and built the church so that you would know him. He invites you in. And in the first week, part of that revealing was, hey, Jesus is on his way. He is coming soon. Last week, we saw that some of the most endlessly enduring pain in our lives, some of the biggest and deepest struggles that we will face, are really just the setup to God being able to show us Jesus like we've never seen him before. And some of you know that from experience, don't you? You've walked through storms or you're in the middle of a storm and you know the presence of Jesus in your life like you haven't before. For some of you, it's been a little while and it's kind of faded into the background. But today, I pray that Jesus stirs it up in us because today we read John's reaction to Jesus appearing. And we turn a corner into the messages he's going to give to the seven churches. So we're going to start in uh, verse 17. We're going to read verse 17 and 18. It says this, When I saw him, that's Jesus, when John saw Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. John, who knows Jesus well, one of his dearest friends in this world, spent years with him, has given his life to serve him because he saw Jesus rose from the dead. He has lived his life for him. But when he sees Jesus in glory, he falls as though dead, unable to move. Many people throughout Scripture who have seen Jesus in glory have had similar reactions. See the same reaction on the Mount of Transfiguration? We see the same reaction from Saul, who's going to persecute people, uh, and as on the road to Damascus, he's going to persecute. He sees Jesus. He falls on his face. Daniel, when he sees a vision from God, falls on his face in Daniel 10. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, cries out as they all do, Woe is me, I am undone. And they see the vision of the Lord. And that asks me something about the people of God. If you knew Jesus was near, I think you would be living in awe of him. I think if when you see Jesus for who he is, the glory and the greatness of Jesus, you just, there's only one thing to do. It's just like, wow. Have you been reminded about his goodness and his greatness in your life? Are you living in awe of him? I think it would change some of the things we do. I think there are people out there that if they saw the living Jesus, if they saw him in glory, maybe when they go take his name in vain so lightly in the course of their life as a curse word, they might change that if they saw Jesus. Do you know what I mean? I think people who claim to follow Jesus would be a little bit more aware of the fact that he's in charge and not you. That you're following him. He doesn't get to be a sticker on your arm where you're like, well, I'm a Christian, so let me tell you. And Jesus agrees with me. I think if we saw Jesus for who he was, we'd be like, Jesus, you tell us. Let me follow you. I think there'd be a lot more humility there'd be a lot more grace. A lot of people who think that they're big and powerful and strong because they're popular or they're, they're good looking or they have a lot of money or they're in some prestigious position, I think they would, they would see themselves in a whole different light if they stood in front of Jesus, if they knew he was there. Every now and then, believer, I think we need to be reminded of our unworthiness and his greatness because I think the enemy wants to, to try to remind us of our good enoughness, of our we've got to handle itness, of our let's get it doneness. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. At the same time, he's trying to build you up to believe only you can do it. He's also critiquing you like, why aren't you doing it enough? It's this never-ending cycle. We've got to come before Jesus and be convinced of our unworthiness, of our, our inability to do what needs to be done. But he is great and he is good. And when we see that, when we, when we fall at his feet, it opens the door to worship. We ascribe worth to the one who is worthy of it. And we don't get deceived into thinking, oh, we got to do it all ourselves. So John falls at Jesus' feet as though dead. Jesus comes over and puts his hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Now, if this is you, let's just say you go home tonight, you're getting ready for bed, you turn around in the bathroom after you brush your teeth, and there's Jesus, right? Like the, the shining, like the image there, and you fall down, and Jesus says to you, now don't be afraid. You're like, yeah, right. <laughs> right? I mean, are you kidding me? Don't be, it almost sounds like, how, how am I supposed to do that? Well, Jesus goes on from don't be afraid, because 
Understandably, Jesus being near us could make us feel afraid. We could be afraid of his judgment, his power, his all-knowingness. But the point in Revelation, and the point for John here, is that Jesus is close to us is not supposed to make us afraid. It is meant to free us from fear. When Jesus is in your life, it is supposed to be progressively breaking the chains of fear, setting you free. Now, John has heard these words from Jesus before during his ministry. Jesus has said to his disciples a number of times, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Now Jesus says it to him again. And he goes on, and he, Jesus gives a progression about why to not be afraid. How to go from the chaos to calm. How to go from like the fear, the panic, to peace. Wouldn't you like to know how to do that? Well, step one, recognize, embrace that Jesus is near. Step two, recognize who he is. Because he goes through this progression describing himself. He says, I am the first and the last. Like last week, I am the beginning and the end. I am the start of all things. I am the end of all things. I am all in all. But he actually uses some words that refer to a place like Isaiah 48, 12, where, where the first and last doesn't just mean the beginning and end. It means the only one. I'm the beginning and end of the conversation. When you're talking about God, it's me. I'm the beginning of the conversation. I'm the end of the conversation. I'm the whole conversation. Jesus is saying, I am the only one. There is no one like me. I am, then he says, the living one. So he's, it's a nod to what he's going to say next about dying and rising again. But it really refers to the, the title of God in the Old Testament, the self-existent one, Yahweh. No one created me. No one makes me exist. I am by myself. I was, I am, I am to come. We sang that this morning, right? The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. I am the self-existent, the living one, and I'm not some dead God, you know, some, some magic lore, some, some myth, some fable. I'm not some, some carved image, some man-made idea plated with gold or something. I am not some, some natural object like a tree or the moon or the sun. I am the living one. I am the God who is alive. And then he says this, so, so I have all power, I have all authority, I rule and reign. I'm the beginning and the end of the conversation about deity. I was dead and I am alive forever and ever. So now we're sure that this is Jesus. I was dead and now I'm alive forever and ever. But think about what he's saying there. To start, if I want to know that, that peace comes out of chaos, if I want to know how to settle my soul, know that Jesus is near and then know who he is. I am the first and the last, I am the living one, and I was dead and I am alive forevermore. Think about what he's saying. Why was he dead? Did someone trick him? Did someone like maneuver him into death? The word of God says he chose to die for us. So the God who is self-existent, who rules and reigns on high, who is worthy of all glory and honor, that same God chose to come live as a human being and to give his life for you and me. That's why we should not be afraid. Because he is great and he is good. Everything that, that has been said about him is true. He is all-powerful and overwhelming. But he chose to die and rise again so we could be saved from the wrath that we should face for our sins. 
And he closes it by saying, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. The same one who loves me, the same one who gave his life for me, is completely in charge of death and Hades. He has power over the most hopeless and helpless realities in our life, death and the grave. So for Christians, what this means is death is transformed from my ultimate hopelessness to my ultimate deliverance. Ever thought about that? Throughout the centuries, your brothers and sisters have lived in that reality. That no matter what happens to me, the worst that can happen to me, the worst someone can do to me is been transformed from my end to my real beginning. To the deliverance from all the mess that this is into all the promise that that is. Jesus being near us and Jesus being who he is, those two facts are meant to steady God's people for anything. And for the church that is written to right here, the the church that is being persecuted, it is meant to get them ready with what they need to face the persecution, the danger that's coming their way. And if they could do that, then maybe we could be ready for anything that comes our way. For what people think about you. For discouragement. For the times where you have to wait and you don't think you can wait anymore. For the brokenness of your life. For the way that someone hurts you. Maybe we, if Jesus is near and he is who he says he is, maybe we're ready to face loss. Maybe we're ready to face the damage that's happened or that we've done. Maybe we're ready to face our own guilt and own up to it and put things right. Maybe him being near and being who he is is exactly what we need for what life is going to throw at us this week. And maybe the reason we have lived so overwhelmed is because we haven't lived like he is near us. Since our Lord is near, we never walk alone. We never walk without the power we need, and everything in our life has a purpose for His kingdom. All right, let's go on. I'm going to go down to verse 20, then I'm going to connect it back to the vision before. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so he's about to write letters to each of these churches. And Jesus is explaining to John these symbols that John saw and wrote down, these lampstands and these stars. He says the lampstands are the seven churches that he's going to write to, Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum, like the seven churches that we're going to read letters to. These are the letters that the the, the lampstands represent each of those churches. And I think that those churches are representative of us. In other words, the letter he writes is not just to that church, it's to, to the churches, because the letter is going to go around all churches and to churches throughout history because all of us have the kind of problems that these churches reflect. So these letters are not meant to just be specifically at those churches. They are representative of all of us. And then he says the seven stars are seven angels. So it's like there's an angel assigned to each church. You think there's an angel assigned to our church? Wouldn't that be cool? Right? I wonder what, wonder what his name is. We, could we name them? I don't think we can, but wouldn't that be cool, right? Um, actually, this is probably not that kind of angel because what, what God is saying to John is write this letter to those angels. So it would be a really, really weird postal system if God got John to write something down to send a letter to heavenly beings. And as you read into the next chapters, the word angel actually means messenger. That's what the word means, which is why we call them angels, because they're messengers from God. But it just actually means messenger. It probably more legitimately is the messenger of God to each of these churches. 
the person who would speak for God to these churches. In other words, God is saying, I want to get message to these churches. So I'm writing it to the person who would speak these words to each of these churches. But here's the point. Seven churches, seven messengers. Where is Jesus? Look back at verse 12. It says this, And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars. So where is Jesus? He's in the middle of the lampstands. Jesus is right with them. They're going into persecution. They're going into danger. And Jesus' message to them at the beginning is, I'm going with you. I'm right here with you. You are not alone. If there's anything that you need to take with you into this world of chaos and mess, it's this fact. Jesus is near us. Please know that when all seems lost and when you are very aware of the danger around you, you don't have to go find Jesus. He's already come to find you. Isn't that awesome? Like you as a believer sometimes can get convinced that you've got to go find God. You don't have to find God. He came to find you. Which makes me wonder why we so often live like he's not around us. And actually, he's not just in proximity to us, walking among the lampstands. Did you see what he's doing with the stars? He's holding them in his hand. You say, well, that's that's cool for whoever those messenger people are. Well, I think the point is that all of us, when we are in his calling, when we're doing his kingdom work, we are held in his hand. So wherever life takes you this week, you have kingdom work to do. And as you step into the kingdom work you have to do, Jesus holds you in his hand. It is the same picture that Jesus used in John 10 when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. Did you know that you are in his hand? That he holds you? That no matter what comes, No matter what you're in, no matter what you've done, no matter what is coming, Jesus is with you and Jesus holds you. One more quick thought before we observe communion together. I'm going to go back to verse 19 because in the middle of this, Jesus says this to John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Jesus says, now I'm near you, and I want people to know that I'm near you, but I want you to write this down, John, because I've got a message for you. Jesus' nearness to us includes the idea that he has things to say to us. Jesus has words you need to hear, believer. He has words you need to hear now. He's got words you need to hear with what's coming this week. I wonder when the last time you heard Jesus was. Because he's near. And right here what we see is his nearness means he has things to say to us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to guide us. Maybe he's still saying them and we're just not listening because we don't have time. Or we've forgotten that he might want to tell us something. People of God, we need to live in awareness of his nearness so that we can listen for his voice. Because some of what we need to hear is stuff that only comes from the lips of our Savior. Do you know how close he is in your life? Do you see him 
If, if you haven't seen him in your life for a while, this week, look for him. Lord, open my eyes. Let me see you, right? Jesus is also here to lead us. And if we listen, we'll know what he wants to say to us. You know that God has not stopped wanting you to know what he has for you. If I'm not hearing God, the problem is not on his end. It's probably right here. So maybe you're like, well, I don't know how to hear Jesus. Good. Do you know what you could do? Ask Jesus to show you how to hear him. Because he wants you to. So like, Lord, I don't know how to see you. I don't know how to hear you. Would you teach me? He wants to. How badly does he want you to know him and see him and feel him and hear him? He wrote a letter to these, these churches that are going into persecution so that they would know he's near, so that they could hear his word. You have the word of God in your hands because he wants you to hear him. And he knows sometimes it's hard for you spiritually to get past the physical, so he wrote some things down so you could read it, so this could be a jump start into hearing him, right? Jesus, teach me how to hear you. Teach me how to know that you are near.